you're listening to a message from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix that creates space for people to practice the ways of Jesus together. But tonight we're going to be reading portions from Dr. Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail. But before we do, I'd like to read an excerpt from writer, editor, and researcher Barbara Marazzani, who gives historical context to what was happening before Dr. King penned his letter. She says this, on April 12, 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and nearly 50 other protesters and civil rights leaders were arrested after leading a Good Friday demonstration as part of the Birmingham campaign designed to bring national attention to the brutal, racist treatment suffered by blacks in one of the most segregated cities in America, Birmingham, Alabama. For months, an organized boycott of the city's white-owned businesses had failed to achieve any substantive results, leaving King and others convinced they had no other options but more direct actions, ignoring a recently passed ordinance that prohibited public gathering without an official permit. For King, this arrest was his 13th and would become one of the most important of his career. Thrown into solitary confinement, King was initially denied access to his lawyers or allowed to contact his wife until President John F. Kennedy was urged to intervene on his behalf. As previously agreed upon, King was not immediately bailed out of jail by his supporters, having instead agreed to a longer stay in jail to draw attention to the plight of black Americans. Shortly after King's arrest, a friend smuggled a copy of an April 12th Birmingham newspaper, which included an open letter written by eight local Christian and Jewish religious leaders, which criticized both the demonstrations and King himself, whom they considered to be an outside agitator. Isolated in his cell, King began working on a response. Without notes, or research materials, King drafted an impassioned defense on his use of nonviolent but direct actions. I'd like for us to take the next two and a half minutes to watch some footage of Dr. King and reflect on his life. And while you're watching the footage and reflecting, ask yourself, how can we join him in the ongoing fight for justice and equality? Let's reflect. Excerpts from the letter from Birmingham Jail by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. My dear fellow clergymen, while confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling my present activities unwise and untimely. But since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill and that your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I want to try to answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. You deplore the demonstrations taking place in Birmingham, but your statement, I am sorry to say, fails to express a similar concern for the conditions that brought about the demonstrations. I am sure that none of you would want to rest content with the superficial kind of social analysis that deals merely with effects and does not grapple with underlying causes. 
It is unfortunate that demonstrations are taking place in Birmingham, but it is even more unfortunate that the city's white power structure left the Negro community with no alternative. We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I have yet to engage in a direct action campaign that was well-timed in the view of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I have heard the word, wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. We must come to see with one of our distinguished jurists that justice too long delayed is justice denied. We have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. Perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will, and drown your sisters and brothers at whim. When you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters. When you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society. When you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television. And you see tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that Fun Town is closed to colored children. And see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness towards white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile, because no motel will accept you. When you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored, when your first name becomes nigger, your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John, and your wife and mother are never given the respected title misses. When you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro, living constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, when you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. I hope, sirs, that you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. Let us take a moment of silence and reflection.
I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you and the goal that you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action. Who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom. Who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow and understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. Actually, we who engage in nonviolent direct action are not the creators of tension. We merely bring to the surface the hidden tension that is already alive. We bring it out in the open where it can be seen and dealt with. Like a boil that can never be cured so long as it is covered up, but must be open with all its ugliness to the natural medicines of air and light, injustices must be exposed. With all the tension its exposure creates to the light of human conscience and the air of na national opinion before it can be cured. Oppressed people cannot remain oppressed forever. The yearning for freedom eventually manifests itself and that is what has happened to the American Negro. If one recognizes this vital urge that has engulfed the Negro community, one should readily understand why public demonstrations are taking place. The Negro has many pent up resentments and latent frustrations and he must release them. So let them march. Let him make prayer pilgrimages to the city hall. Let him go on freedom rides and try to understand why he must do so. If his repressed emotions are not released in nonviolent ways, they will seek expression through violence. This is not a threat, but a, but a fact of history. So I have not said to my people, get rid of your discontent. Rather, I have tried this, that this normal and healthy discontent can be channeled into the creative outlet of nonviolent direct action. And now this approach is being termed extremist. But though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, as I continue to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? To love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. 
was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, so help me God. And John Bunyan, I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a butchery of my conscience. And Abraham Lincoln, this nation cannot survive half slave and half free. And Thomas Jefferson, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremist we will be. Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extinction of justice? In that dramatic scene on Calvary's hill, three men were crucified. We must never forget that all three were crucified for the same crime, the crime of extremism. Two were extremists for immorality and thus fell below their environment. And the other, Jesus Christ, was an extremist for love truth and goodness and thereby rose above his environment perhaps the south the nation of the world are in dire need of creative extremists but despite these notable exceptions i must honestly reiterate that i have been disappointed with the church I do not say this as one of those negative critics who can always find something wrong with the church. I say this as a minister of the gospel who loves the church, who was nurtured in its bosom, who has been sustained by its spiritual blessing, and who will remain true to it as long as the cord of life shall lengthen. When I was suddenly capitulated into the leadership of the bus protest in Montgomery, Alabama a few years ago, I felt we would be supported by the white church. I felt that the white ministers, priests, and rabbis of the South would be among our strongest allies. Instead, some have been outright opponents, refusing to understand the freedom movement and misrepresenting its leadership. All too many others have been more cautious than courageous and have remained silent behind the anesthesiating security of stained glass windows. In spite of my shattered dreams, I came to Birmingham with the hope and that white religious leadership of this community would see the justice of our cause and with deep moral concern would serve as the channel through which our just grievances could reach the power structure. I had hoped that each of you would understand, but again, I have been disappointed. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churchmen stand on the sideline and mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard many ministers say, those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. 
I have traveled the length and breadth of Alabama, Mississippi, and all the other southern states. On sweltering summer days and crisp autumn mornings, I have looked at the South's beautiful churches with their lofty spires pointing heavenward. I have beheld the impressive outlines of her massive religious education buildings, and over and over I have found myself asking what kind of people worship here? Who is their God? Where were their voices of support when the bruised and weary Negro men and women decided to rise from the dark dungeons of complacency to the bright hills of creative protest? Yes, these questions are still in my mind. In deep disappointment, I have wept over the laxality of the church, but be assured that my tears have been tears of love. There can be no deep disappointment where there has not been deep love. Yes, I love the church. How could I do otherwise? I am in the rather unique position of being the son, the grandson, and the great-grandson of preachers. Yes, I see the church as the body of Christ, but oh, how we have blemished and scarred that body through social neglect and through fear of being nonconformist. There was a time when the church was very powerful. In the time when the early Christians rejoiced at believing and being worthy to suffer for what they believed in. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion, but it was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiator, cons gladiator contest. But things are different now. So often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is an arch defender of the status quo, far from being disturbed by the presence of the church. The power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silence and often even vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity forfeit the loyalty of millions and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Never before have I written so, so long a letter. I'm afraid it is much too long to take your precious time. I can assure you that it would have been much shorter if I had been writing from a comfortable desk, but what else can one do when he is alone in a narrow jail cell? other than write long letters, think long thoughts, and pray long prayers. If I have said anything in this letter that overstates the truth and indicates an unreasonable impatience, I beg you to forgive me. 
If I had said anything that understates the truth and indicates my having a patience that allows me to settle for anything less than brotherhood, I beg God to forgive me. I hope this letter finds you strong in faith. I also hope that circumstances will soon make it possible for me to meet each of you. Not as an integrationist or a civil rights leader, but as a fellow clergyman and a Christian brother. Let us all hope that the dark clouds of racial prejudice will soon pass away and the deep fog of misunderstanding will be lifted from our fear-drenched communities and in some not too distant tomorrow, the radiant stars of love and brotherhood will shine over our great nation with all their scrutiny beauty. Yours for the cause of peace and brotherhood, Martin Luther King Jr. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Kendall. Dear Kaleo family, I'm not writing from jail. However, I'm writing to us today from the confines of a dominant and pervasive worldview. White supremacy is the air we breathe. This does not mean if you are white like me that you are inherently a white supremacist or a racist. Though you might be exhaling such isms as naturally as, well, breathing. Therefore, I am writing to us so that we might all no longer continue inhaling and exhaling poison. Echoing Dr. King, it seems to be a fact of life that human beings cannot continue to do wrong without eventually reaching out for some rationalization to clothe their acts in the garments of righteousness. And so, beginning with the growth of slavery, humanity had to convince themselves that a system which was so economically profitable was morally justifiable. The attempt to give moral sanction to a profitable system gave birth to the doctrine of white supremacy the air we breathe. Now, perhaps we would all feel more aligned if we say we are here now in the same way Dr. King said he was in Birmingham in 1963. Are we here because injustice is here also? Will we sit idly by or we, will we acknowledge injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere? Dr. King, hearkening the vision of Jesus, reminds us we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. This is why, as the family of Kaleo, we practice the ways of Jesus together. This is why we embrace the tension and seek reconciliation within the multi-ethnic family of God. Fittingly, another person two millennia ago wrote a letter from a jail cell. Turns out empires have been wrongly imprisoning folk for a long time. 
This man wrote an incarcerated plea to dismantle the wall of hostility dividing diverse communities. You see, the Apostle Paul was writing to the church in Ephesus and beyond, reminding them that Jesus brought peace. Not the kind of peace that Dr. King called obnoxious peace, Rather, a peace that is not merely the absence of some negative force, war, tension, confusion, but it is the presence of some positive force, justice, goodwill, the power of the kingdom of God. This peace that Jesus brought and that Paul and King emphasize is intended to break down the wall of hostility that separates the multi-ethnic family of God. And yet, the liberating, embracing love of Jesus can still seem elusive. On MLK Sunday 2022, I don't believe it is a stretch to say the wall of hostility is still being reconstructed in different forms of racism. Dr. King in his book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community, writes that the church has a special obligation He says the church is the voice of moral and spiritual authority on earth. And he goes on to say, yet no one observing the history of the church in America can deny the shameful fact that it has been an accomplice in structuring racism into the architecture of American society. Thus the question, where do we go from here? King continues in search of an answer. But the church as a whole has been all too negligent on civil rights. It has too often blessed a status quo that needed to be blasted and reassured a social order that needed to be reformed. So the church must acknowledge its guilt, its weak and vacillating witness, its all too frequent failure to obey the call to servanthood. Today, King says, the judgment of God is upon the church for its failure to be true to its mission. And if the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. And so I write to implore us, Kaleo, to repent of our failure and recapture our mission for servanthood in the way of Jesus. May we never become an irrelevant social club. As Brenda Salter McNeil says, we cannot accomplish God's mission in our own ability or strength. If we are to move out beyond the safe and familiar surroundings of our own ethnic groups in order that the church might better reflect the image of God by including people from every tribe and nation, we will need the Spirit of God to empower us. And so she teaches us to pray. We pray for the power and the blessing of the Holy Spirit to be upon us as we seek to be a part of a community of reconciled people. And we pray for the Holy Spirit to be upon the church as we strive together to live out the meaning of reconciliation and fulfill the mandate to completely fill the earth with the awe-inspiring image of God. Again, at the core of our community exists the reminder that we are loved but we need each other. Paul's prison letter set out to orient the Ephesians and the future of the multi-ethnic church around the reconciliatory work of Jesus Christ, imploring and begging them to embrace their unity as a new humanity. 
The ethnocentrism Jesus dismantled and Paul urged the people of God to dispose of has grown new roots in the racial injustice bred within the complex history of the United States. It is imperative that we coalesce history and theology so we might learn a new way forward. Let us observe that when one group of people is deemed to be outsiders, or if at another point in time the multi-ethnic church is separated, it is not what Jesus announced. Presently, this is the sin of homogeneity in which sociologist and author of Divided by Faith, Michael Emerson, finds this, that homogenous local churches reproduce inequality, encourage oppression, strengthen racial division, and heighten political separation. It would not be a stretch to label this a wall of hostility that perpetuates the separating system that Jesus desires to dismantle. Jesus broke down the wall of hostility that separated by ending the system. This is the work of racial justice in our present moment. Paul is clear about Jesus' intentions and directives by eloquently stating, together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other was put to death. It is, in fact, the work of the unifying spirit that makes this future possible because now we are all invited to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. To experience this peace of Christ that Paul preaches, we must confess the injustice in our midst, lament it, repent of it, and dismantle the wall of white supremacy that separates. The peacemaking pastor, Eugene Peterson, distills it down to this. Jesus brings us home. Jesus brings us together. Jesus breaks down hostility. Jesus recreates us as a unified humanity. Jesus reconciles all of us to God. The church of today must deconstruct, dismantle, and dismiss its obsession with individualism, lest it continue to serve as the blockade toward holistic, reconciled shalom as the multi-ethnic family of God. And this is no easy task. And yet, if we try to enact racial justice in little pockets of controlling individualism, racism will continue to distort the community God intended from creation, that Jesus embodied in his peaceable kingdom, and that the Spirit longs to unify. A disassociated bunch of individuals cannot be unified, and they certainly cannot be reconciled. But even more so, neither will flourish until the dry bed of justice rolls like a river again. Kaleo, let us cast our hostility shrouded in white supremacy aside by practicing hospitality fueled by Jesus-centric forgiveness and justice, God's embracing love and liberation, and the spirit of truth-telling with the gift of repentance. You are loved, my friends. And may we follow Jesus as we get into good trouble together. For more resources or information about Kaleo, 
Please visit our website at kaleophx.com or follow us on social media. If this episode has been helpful to you, let us know or share it with someone you know.